0: Welcome to the Just Ingredients Podcast. I'm Carlyn, and here we talk all things nourishing to the mind, body, and soul. This is a place where you can find just good ingredients to life. Get ready to fall in love with four new Just Ingredient beauty and hygiene products made without any spooky ingredients. Have you been looking to improve your skincare routine? Leave the preservatives and harsh ingredients behind and try our new hyaluronic acid serum. Preserved by silver, it hydrates the skin while also providing antimicrobial and antibacterial benefits. Also, and utilizing silver as a preservative is our new body lotion made with jojoba oil and shea butter to smooth, moisturize, and protect your skin. For those that aren't a fan of their current stick deodorant, make sure to try this new cream deodorant that is safe for use on all areas of your body, including your pits, bits, feet, and thighs. And if those products aren't your thing, try something new with Just Ingredients Remineralizing Tooth Powder made with hydroxyapatite to strengthen and remineralize your teeth while leaving your breath minty fresh. With three options to choose from, you're sure to find one that you love. Mark your calendars for October 13th and 14th to grab these new products at a special launch discount. These products won't be on sale again soon, so stock up now. Once again, shop the launch of four new Just Ingredient products on October 13th and 14th at justingredients.us. Again, that's justingredients.us. Dr. Thomas Hemingway is an integrative medical doctor who lives and shares his philosophy of prevention over prescription. He is passionate about natural health and healing through simple yet powerful daily practices which can be life-saving. His upcoming book, Preventable, Five Powerful Practices to Avoid Disease and Build Unshakable Health, describes the foundational principles of creating solid lifelong health. He also loves sharing his message in his top-rated health podcast, Modern Medicine Movement where he is known for distilling down the latest medical knowledge and science into easy, digestible, and actionable steps which can change our lives in the present and the future. He is also a husband and proud father to six wonderful humans with whom he enjoys spending time in the outdoors surfing, snowboarding, skiing, hiking, skateboarding, mountaineering, and playing tennis. He has the goal of saving 100 million lives by optimizing health and wellness through natural means. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, I am really excited to have Dr. Hemingway with us. I have been following him on Instagram and you guys, he's a really fun follow on Instagram, gives little quick, easy tips and does them always in a reel. And so I love watching your reels and excited to talk to him today. So thank you so much for being here
1: Uh, It's my pleasure, Carolyn. Big aloha to everybody out there. I'm so excited to be here.
0: Well, I love that you're always in Hawaii showing your reels. Sometimes I just want to be there with you. Why don't you begin by telling my listeners a little bit about your background, what got you interested in going into the medical field, things like that?
1: Oh, I would love to. So I would describe myself as a very curious individual. Like I was probably downright annoying when I was a kid because I was always asking questions. I love to figure things out. I love to ask questions. And one day it was about uh, when I was seven, I believe it was seven or eight years old. I was sitting on a porch in Utah, actually, where my grandparents lived. And I was sitting with my grandfather and we were just having a good old chat. He and I were really, really close and we'd spend summers in Utah. I grew up in California. And one of those summer afternoons, we were sitting on the porch together and I watched him literally pull out a needle, prick his finger, draw blood. And I was like, holy crap, grandpa, you're bleeding. Like, what's going on? Are you okay? And he's like, oh, don't worry about this. I have type one diabetes. I've had it since I was young. And I'm doing this right now because I want to see you grow up. And I kind of was like, what? Like, why are you pricking your finger? That's so weird. And then he kind of proceeded to explain to me a little bit about the physiology of what's behind diabetes and how he needed to not only monitor his sugar, but watch his diet and all these kinds of things. And I was like, wow, that's pretty interesting. And I, you know, I was a seven-year-old, so I couldn't put it all in context, but I've always from that day been super interested in the body and physiology. Later on, when I was about 12, I had another super influential guy in my life who was my youth uh, scout leader. He was also diabetic, type one diabetic, similar to my grandfather. And he was such a go-getter. He was super animated. We'd play basketball. He'd get me up in the mornings at like five o'clock before his work and before my school. We'd go play basketball. It was great. He was such a phenomenal guy. And and what I found out later, I, I didn't know this at the time, but that he didn't really take care of his diabetes. He didn't really measure his sugar much. He ended up having all of the complications you hear about. He lost digits and toes and ended up on dialysis and he died In his 40s, legit in his 40s, he died of something that was preventable. My grandfather lived till he was 90, almost 95, and they had the same exact type of diabetes as far as type one, the early onset diabetes. And the difference was how they managed it and how they took care of themselves. And so that really struck me, and it was so eye-opening that there's so many things out there that we could actually have a big and really major impact upon if we do a couple of things with our health. And so I was sold. I really wanted to help people be more like my grandfather to live a full life to be there with their grandkids, and I didn't want to see what happened to this friend of mine, my scout leader, who literally left his family in his 40s. He had young kids and you know full life ahead of them. Left uh, left the wife, and, and it's just even to this day, it kind of it really has a little bit of a toll. And so I don't want people to have to suffer through that. I want them to live their fullest life and hopefully be able to avoid a lot of these chronic diseases that plague our society today. So I became a physician. I initially trained in emergency medicine. I'm a board-certified emergency physician. I've worked for over 20 years in hospitals and clinics. And and a couple of years ago, I started noticing in the ER we were having young people. When I say young, I, I mean younger than I. I'm turning 50 next year, and I was seeing people in their 30s and 40s suffer from heart attacks, for example. Some would even die a sudden cardiac death. In their 30s and 40s, and I didn't really see this in you know the early part of my training. In my 20 plus years ago, it was usually 50s and 60s, etc. And so I was like, "Dang, something is not right." I love to care for these people in the acute setting. Hopefully, we can get that blood vessel open back up, and they can survive it and, and live a decent life. But but why is this happening? Why are we having 30 year olds and 40 year olds literally having heart attacks? This is something we are not doing right in. Sort of Western medicine society in general. So I really pivoted at that point and I decided to really focus more on prevention over prescription and really have been diving deep into holistic integrative medicine, working with the Institute for Functional Medicine and others to really get the word out on how we can really get deep on our own health, get to the root cause and not just throw prescriptions at everybody. Cause that's the simple, easy bandaid approach that I was taught in medical school, but it's not necessarily the best. If you attack things from the root, you can really make a bigger difference. So
0: that's incredible. I love the story. I love that you saw a problem in the ER and then asked a question. Because I think that's where growth happens is with the curiosity. And so I love that you then went the prevention route rather than the prescription route and trying to educate people about underlying root causes and things like that. And I know you have a book called Preventable. And in that book, you actually talk a little bit about weight and how weight can be an underlying root cause for people. And so today, I actually want to ask you a lot about weight. I don't have a podcast really on weight and so thank you for being willing to talk to me about this today
1: yeah no no problem and i know it's always a little bit of a sensitive subject and i think a lot of people avoid it and i love to talk about it because it's really one of those things that can be a major lever that we can use to improve our health and right now in the world not just in the u.s being overweight or obese is actually the leading, the absolute number one leading cause of disability today. And it relates to every chronic disease that's out there. Heart disease goes up with increased weight. So does uh, diabetes, especially the type two diabetes, which is essentially similar in process to the physiology of, of, of the being overweight and how that gets started. And as well as that cancer is even related to increasing weight. So almost every really, really common health condition, especially those that cause mortality in the world. There's 10 leading causes of death. Seven of 10 of those are basically nearly entirely preventable and they all get worse with increasing weight. So it's a huge problem worldwide. And so I think we have to talk about it. We can't just ignore it because of different you know pressures or what have you. We need to talk about it because it's so darn important. And it's really something that is a major lever that can change our lives if we pay attention and I explain this in the book simply with a couple of five five steps exactly that talk about this.
0: So why do you think we don't talk about it just because it's not politically correct? I think that's a big
1: part of it. And, you know, the issue right now, I think here's the thing. If you walk around in our country, in the U.S., it's actually magnified. It's much worse than a lot of other places in the world. For example, um, this past uh, January, I was in Portugal for a couple of weeks and it's typical Mediterranean type uh, area where the food is real. They grow it, you know, uh, close to where you eat it and everything is natural, real and whole. And they don't have a lot of processed foods and the obesity rates. there super low. I almost, you know, my wife and I walked all day long. Literally, we went to places and we got to see amazing you know, structures that were hundreds, even thousands of years old. And it was rare that we saw people that were overweight. Same thing when I visited Italy a few years ago, same kind of thing. Here in the US, you go to the supermarket and the stats show right now, 73.6% of us, more than seven of 10 of us here in the US can be classified as overweight. So it is a huge problem and it affects so many of us. Yet, I think because of the pressures, of, because of the new movements of any weight is healthy and all that, and, and I get that and I, I like to be sensitive to that, but it, the data doesn't support that. Not every weight is healthy. And like I said earlier, as you increase in weight, all of the potential health conditions that exist, everything from diabetes to heart disease and cancer, they all go up as a direct correlation. So it's, it's a significant matter that we have to pay attention to.
0: Okay. So how does someone know if their weight is reaching a point where it is unhealthy?
1: It depends on how you look at it, right? So I like to look at function. Um, you You can use numbers. Numbers are simple and easy. The CDC, for example, uses the body mass index, and that's kind of the most commonly used term, if you will, because it's measurable. You basically take your weight and divide it by your height. And this is in the metric system. So it's kilograms over meters squared. So you might need a calculator for this, <laughs> but typically you use that number and you are technically classified as overweight. If your BMI is over 25, and if it's over 30, you're, you're, classified as obese. And so those numbers are readily available. There's calculators. You know, I would just recommend if you want to just quickly check it online, just go to a BMI calculator, put in your weight. And these are smart calculators. You can put it in pounds. You don't have to do the conversion. 2.2 pounds is a kilogram. And you can just get that number rapidly. So, so that's where the sort of benchmark number comes from. But I would say if you can't do the things that you want to do, I like to focus on function, like the things that you want to be able to do. If you want to be able to go for a walk, you want to be able to pick up your kids, you want to be able to you know, do some type of an exercise. And if you can't do it, even if you're not, quote unquote, overweight or obese, you need to look at that. Or if you do the mirror test, right? If you take your clothes off and look at yourself naked in the mirror and you see something that you're like, oh crap, I'm, you know, I'm, I got some jiggles there that I wish I didn't have, or maybe that I didn't have when I was a teenager or when I was 20, that's another test. And it's maybe less, you know, we don't like to do it, but you know, you got to get a little bit of a, you got to be real with yourself because at the end of the day, every health condition goes up with increasing weight. And also your lifespan goes down with increasing weight. And this has been well studied. All the data shows basically a one-to-one correlation. And so the cool thing is there's a couple of measures we can easily do on, a, on the daily that can really help with this mix. And so, yeah, there's not not a one-size-fits-all one, one size fits all approach to this. You can do the numbers, which is super easy, the BMI, uh, which if you've never done it, do that. There's also other tests where you can calculate your fat percentages. I don't love those because the, the really good ones are not readily available. Like if you just go to your local gym and you say, hey, check my body fat percentage. And number one, the test that they use may not be super reliable. And number two, it's gonna freak you out. Like if I go in there and have that test, it's always higher than I would think that it would be. Or my wife has done it a bunch of times and she's like, this doesn't make any sense. I'm super active. My BMI is not up. And this darn test at the gym tells me I'm like 40 something percent body fat. Like that doesn't even make sense. So, you know, everything with a grain of salt, but a BMI is a good place to start.
0: Well, and some people don't like the BMI either. So I actually like your function yeah. approach. Like if you can't do the things that you're wanting to do, like picking up your grandchild or going on a walk or, you know, tying your shoes, Things like that to look more at function.
1: Yeah. And I like that too, because BMI, I don't love it either. It's not great. It's just, it's just a universal measure that's been used in all the studies. So it, at least you can compare the quote unquote apples to apples. But I also agree with you. It's not a great indicator. There's so many other things you can look at, both blood work-wise. And then I just love to look at the function because all of us have certain goals, things that we want to be able to do. And if we lean over to tie our shoe and there's something in the way or we can't bend that far or we can't walk around the block or we can't even go up the flight of stairs in our own home, like red flag, we got to do something. We got to do something about it.
0: Okay, so let's talk about some of these things that we can do because you talk about metabolism. And so let's... Just start at the basics. What is metabolism and how does metabolism play a role in weight loss?
1: Yeah, metabolism, I think, sadly, is one of the least well-understood features of sort of health and wellness across the world. Um, When we think of metabolism... Most of us in our 20s and 30s and maybe 40s are are kind of thinking to ourselves, crap, my metabolism slowed down. Like, what's going on with that? So let me just briefly, metabolism, all it means is the sum total of all of the different reactions that are going on in your body that keep you alive. Think about breathing. Think about your heart system, the circulatory system. Think about your immune system. Think about your GI or gastrointestinal system that basically takes the food that you eat, breaks it down, makes it both absorbable and then usable, and then puts it into all the building blocks that we need, all of these things together are your metabolism. It it is what keeps you alive. And on a day-to-day basis, you can sort of measure what they call the basic metabolic rate, if you will. And there's different ways to measure this, but this is a super interesting topic because when you look at it in adults, for example, and when I say adults, I'm meaning from the year 20 years of age to about 60 This is what's been studied in a recent study just last year came out with this, and it was shocking to most people because what they found is between the ages of 20 to 60, your metabolism did not or does not significantly change. In other words, when we like to say in our later 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s that, hey, I'm starting to gain weight because my metabolism is slowing down. I think it's really slowing down. That's actually not the case. The data does not agree with that. And what happens is we, us, we slow down. And and I think if we just look at what we did as a teenager, how active we were and the sports we did and all these kinds of things, and then we think about what we do on a day-to-day basis. And I include myself in here. I am not as active as I was as a teenager or in my twenties. I'm pretty close to it, but I'm not quite that active. I like to be, and that's my goal, but what has slowed down is not my metabolism. It is me. I have slowed down. And that's what the data actually shows with respect to metabolism and the basal metabolic rate. There's one other cool, cool thing that I think that when it came out, this was a couple of years ago, this was a study basically of Westerners. You and I, you know, all the folks that live in the US, Canada, you know, and sort of the Western modernized world, if you will, were compared to the hunter-gatherer tribe in Tanzania. Some of us have heard of them, the, the Hadza. And they looked at the metabolic rate that they had and the metabolic rate that we had. And what was interesting, this also would not have been predicted. Our metabolic rates were essentially the same, Hmm. which basically not only confirms this new data that shows that our metabolism does not significantly slow, but it confirms that the problem in and of itself is not our metabolism per se, it's all the other things. It's what we're eating, it's what we're doing or not doing, because our basic or basal metabolic rate in the western world is very similar to these guys and gals that literally walk 10 to 15 miles a day they're foraging for their food they're so much more active than we yet their metabolic rate is about the same but what's different is all the other stuff right the other environmental factors the things that they do and they don't do what they eat and what they don't eat and so this is really cool stuff that a lot of us were never taught including me i was not taught this in medical school for example but it's also empowering because you can take the levers that play in the metabolism and you can learn how to use them to your advantage.
0: Okay. So that's what I want to ask you because this is really interesting info because I've heard all my life. Oh yeah. As you get older, your metabolism slows down. I think we've all heard that. And so then I've also heard things of like, Oh, you need to do X, Y, and Z to increase your metabolism or to improve your metabolism. So are there ways to improve your metabolism or no?
1: absolutely there are and so what they do the 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 misconception out there is you can either speed up or slow down your metabol- metabolism it doesn't really work like that like i mentioned the data shows that our metabolism between the ages of 20 and 60 is about the same doesn't change significantly however you can sort of wreck your metabolism you can break it you can do things that make it not work well so when people out there tell me oh i feel like my body's falling apart i feel like my metabolism is not working right. It's slowing down. Well, they're right in one sense. The metabolism usually is not working as well as it could be working. It's not slowing down, but it's, it may be broken. Now, you as an individual are not broken, but your metabolism may be broken. And the things that break it are simple things. One is food, the food that we eat. If we eat what most of us do in the Western world, which is over 60% of our diet is in highly processed foods, that wrecks our metabolism. It burns, the mitochondria is sort of like this powerhouse we, we learned in school, right? It's the energy plant of the cell. It's what makes our energy. And that's where most of all the energy comes from in our bodies, 90 some odd percent is produced in the mitochondria. So we can injure or harm these little guys that help us by eating the wrong foods. Eating foods, I just call it the, the wicked triad or the evil three. There's really only three things that, that we should really focus on avoiding in our diet. And that is the highly processed grains, For some of us, it's the glutens and the wheats and things like that. But anything that's highly processed in the grain, we should avoid. The sugars, the highly processed sugars, especially the high fructose corn syrup, we should avoid. And number three is the seed oils. And the reason these things are not good for our metabolism is because they cause inflammation. It's kind of like a dirty fuel, if you will. Like if you think of like diesel fuel, what comes out the exhaust? It's like this really sooty black, you can see it in the air. And if you're close to the tailpipe, it gets on your clothes. That's what these processed foods do. They burn inefficiently and they burn dirty. And those end products are what causes inflammation in the body. So that's the first lever you can pull and use to your advantage is eat real food. Because when you eat real food, that helps your metabolism others like exercise also help your metabolism so the cool thing about this is it doesn't make sense in sort of the basic thermodynamics in other words you know we learn in school you can't create energy nor destroy it right matter cannot be created or nor destroyed nor can nor can energy right it just changes form. so what's cool about metabolism and your mitochondria the guys that produce energy If you exercise them, if you do, you know, any kind of exercise, whether it be aerobic or weight training, resistance training, you actually increase the size of the mitochondria. That's the sort of power plant. So they can get bigger and produce more energy and they divide and develop more mitochondria. So you can actually get more of these power plants in your cells by doing exercise. So that's why exercise actually gives you more energy in the long term. And, and, and even in the short term, usually if you go for a quick walk or do something exercise wise, you feel kind of awake and alert and alive. And then part of that's through this metabolic process that occurs in the mitochondria. So those are a couple of levers. There's others like sleep actually is good for the mitochondria as well. Stress optimization as well. And we can talk about those if we get to it, but any other things about metabolism you wanted to talk about?
0: Yes. Yeah, so I was just going to say, we'll move to stress and sleep and things like that. But let's go back to the food for a minute because so there's these foods that, you know, cause inflammation. Are these foods, the sugar, the oils, the gluten, are they directly affecting the mitochondria?
1: Uh, yes. Yeah. Directly affecting the mitochondria. Absolutely. They are um, literal causes of inflammation. In the mitochondria, you have this thing called the proton pump gradient, which is what ultimately gives us the energy and it makes the ATP, which is that sort of energy fuel or cur- currency of the cell. And when you're primarily fueled by these three things, the sugars, the grains, and the seed oils, which is basically almost every package of anything that comes you know, with a bag or a box or a barcode, any comes package, it's usually going to have these three things, is that it uh, causes what are called free radicals. Free radicals, you can just think of them as that kind of soot or dirty exhaust, if you will. And so, when you burn these type of calories, the highly processed ones, you get this exhaust, which is causing inflammation. And inflammation is really at the root of all illness. So, avoiding inflammatory foods, which are essentially processed foods and most of the fried foods. And the fried foods are still usually processed because they're using Oils that are highly, highly processed, like the seed oil, soybean oil is probably the most common. Canola, safflower, sunflower, rice bran, you know, these types of oils are processed oils. And when you burn them, especially if you put them in a fryer, it even magnifies the inflammation. And that's what causes the beginning of all these other health conditions like obesity, diabetes, heart disease. They're all inflammatory in nature.
0: So, inflammation can be a root cause to weight gain.
1: Absolutely. In fact, uh, I think you've had Dr. Bickman on your podcast in the past. He talks all about this. He got super interested in the fat cells or the adipocytes and what causes them to increase in size. They get larger uh, when we gain weight and they multiply. You get more of them. And these are mechanisms that cause the fat cell can be super inflammatory. There's there's actually specific cytokines that are released. These are just messengers, if you will, that, that tell the body, hey, we need to kind of get get ready for this problem. We need to solve this inflammation problem. So inflammation is actually a good thing if it happens to take care of an injury. Say you fall down and you scrape your knee. So you get white blood cells that go to the site of that scraped knee and they try to make sure that the bacteria is taken care of, they increase blood flow. So it, when it happens for an injury, that's a good thing. But when it happens every single day, day in and day out, it's not a good thing. And that's when you get all these chronic health conditions, including obesity, diabetes, heart disease, cancers, things like that.
0: Okay, so if someone is wanting to lose weight, then going on an anti-inflammatory diet would be really good for them to lower that inflammation to then help them lose weight.
1: That is... Exactly right, you are so right. And and the basic way to do that is avoid processed foods, eat real foods, and the cool thing is right now, we are reminded of this, especially right now in Utah, uh, for example, we can look outside and we can see the colors, right? The beautiful colors of autumn. We see the reds and the yellows and and still some greens on a few of the aspens and things. So we see all these multicolored plants out there. So an anti-inflammatory diet is a colorful diet. It's composed of real food, stuff that doesn't have a label, that doesn't need a label because we know what it is, You know the vegetables, the fruits, the well-raised meats and proteins, You know, like even salmon. Salmon's colorful, right? If you buy fresh salmon, it's colorful. Or in Hawaii, when I buy the fresh ahi tuna, it's a bright red color. If I leave it out for a couple of days, it turns brown. But when I first get it and it's fresh, it's brightly colored and red. And it has those omega-3 fatty acids, which are helpful and anti-inflammatory, as well as all of these wonderful vegetables and fruits that are super colorful from the berries to, you know, the SIE to even avocados can be super colorful and they have anti-inflammatory properties. So do the real rich lettuces, for example, the kale, the, you know, these that are a little bit uh, more colorful than just our standard sort of iceberg lettuce, which is kind of the boring lettuce doesn't have this, the same kind of nutrients. So look for colorful, foods in your diet and make sure they're real, not colorful being the packaging, right? We're just talking about what they actually look like, the colorful uh, vegetables, fruits, and then the well-processed and raised, the well-raised proteins like the wild-caught fish, for example.
0: Okay, I love all your advice. So we're going to avoid the gluten, the inflammatory oils, the sugar, or reduce those. And we're going to add in a bunch of colorful foods, real foods that are going to help fight the inflammation. So I now have a question, though, for you about losing weight. We've got all these loud voices out there on diets of either the keto or counting macros or calorie counting. I mean, the list goes on of different diets. So what do you think about all of these for losing weight?
1: Yeah, so um, I don't even like the word diet, and probably because the root of the word diet is die, right? D-I-E. None of us want to die. And and what's interesting is in all diets – In the short term, doesn't matter what diet you choose. They're basically all successful in the short term. In the long term, however, they are almost universally not successful. In fact, a lot of data has come out of UCLA, Tomi Hama and colleagues, and have found that the best predictor of being someone who frequently goes on diets, anybody, anybody who diets in the long term, the most likely thing is that that individual will actually gain weight. In fact, in excess of their starting weight often. And so dieting is one of the best predictors of future weight gain. And that's what the data shows. That's reality. And if you've been there, that just means you're normal. Don't shame yourself. Don't get mad at yourself. That's, that's normal in the culture and the multi-billion dollar. I think it's the last time you checked, it was almost an $80 billion industry, this whole dieting thing. And it includes All the stuff you just mentioned, Carolyn, from keto to paleo to vegan to there's so many different, quote unquote, dieting mechanisms out there. There's all the programs you can buy and all this kind of stuff. And at the root, they all have some major flaws. You know, one of them is that they tend to count too strongly the calories. And they just say a calorie is a calorie is a calorie. Doesn't matter where it comes from. As long as you burn more calories than you consume, you're always going to lose weight and you're going to be healthy. And that's not entirely true. A calorie is not a calorie is not a calorie. We all, we all know this, even as kids, right? You take a cup of broccoli, you compare it to an Oreo cookie, though they have the same amount of calories, those are not the same. And it's just silly to even think that that could ever possibly be true. They're not the same. Food is information. It can turn on and off genes. There's so much more to it than the calories. So the reason diets fail primarily is that in the long term, most people can't keep up with whatever the restrictions are, right? They're, most of them are just too darn restrictive. We can do it for a few weeks. We might do it for a month or two, but six months and a year. And by two years, basically every diet out there fails at long-term weight loss and somewhere in between the one and two-year period. And it's really sad. So I don't profess any one diet for, for anybody. The cool thing is we are unique. We are individuals. We all have different things that that are best for us. So for one person it might be a low carb, for another person it might be a medium carb, for another person it might be a higher fat diet, for another person, you know, there's no one size fits all approach. And so it really annoys me to see the polarization that exists. It's got to be this way, it's got to be that way. But you know what? There are pros and cons to every single one of these plans, but if we just start with the most important, which is the quality of our food and eat real food, primordial. That's one of the most important things. And then if we add further steps, like the timing, when's the best time to eat? There's lots of data that that can help us there, the timing of our food. And then it's all the other things. It's what we're doing with our sleep and our exercise and our movement and our stress management, all of that sort of thing. So I don't like dieting. It's not not something that works in the end. A lot of problems with it.
0: I love that you said all of that. And I love that you said we're all individual and unique, which is completely true. That's why... Like you said, none of these work, but what is um, the same for all of us is that our bodies will do its best if we can fuel it properly, if we can nourish our body. And so eating the real foods, the nuts, the seeds, the fruits, the veggies, those do nourish our body. And that's what all of us need more of are foods that are going to nourish our body. Not, you know, like you said, not nourish them with calorie counting, things like that.
1: Yeah, and the nourishing part is so important because what happens now is we are literally what I, what I, I, I don't know where I got this, but starving in a sea of plenty. So there's so many calorie dense foods out there available to us. And so we're, most of us don't have an issue with getting enough calories. In fact, I said this at the beginning hunger is now not one of the top 10 leading causes of death in the world. In fact, obesity is way higher than hunger on the list as far as all of the problems that it causes worldwide. And we have caloric sources, but the problem is, Many of them are non-nutritive. You know, these things that are called highly processed foods, I like to call them food-like substances. They're not real food and they don't nourish us. And precisely to your point, if you're not getting the nourishment, your body craves more. It wants to keep eating because it knows it's not getting the nutrients that it needs. So we eat more and more calories. And sadly, at least in the Western world, 60% of our calories are coming from these very non-nutritive sources, which are processed foods, very energy dense, right? Lots of calories, but nutritionally very poor.
0: Yeah. Okay. I'm going to move on to another topic about weight and weight loss, weight gain. How does sleep play a role in this? Because just this morning at the gym, I was talking to somebody about sleep. And so I'd love to hear your take on how sleep helps with our weight.
1: Wow. This is the secret weapon. If you Don't pay attention to anything else I've said. This could be that one thing that could be a game changer for you. And I've seen this very commonly, especially in us that are in our 30s, 40s and beyond. We tend to not sleep the classic seven to eight hours, which we really should strive for, not just the the hours in the cot or in bed. We need to have quality sleep. What's interesting is that they've done studies that literally with as little as one night of sleep deprivation, you start to show signs of inflammation, insulin resistance, all of the things that come together to make weight gain more likely. In fact, a recent study out of Canada took two groups of people. They ate the same calories, not only the same number, but the exact same foods, same nutrients, same number of calories. Everything was identical. One group got seven to eight hours of sleep. By the way, they were both exercising. The other group got about five hours or so of sleep. And in the group that had the seven to eight hours of sleep, they lost significantly more weight Than the group that only got five hours of sleep on average per night, everything else was identical. The foods, the calories that made up the foods, the nutrients, the amount of exercise they were doing, everything else was the same. And the only thing different was their sleep. And the reason this happens is the hormonal issue. Sleep has so much to do with our hormone balance. So the hormones that you've heard about, cortisol, growth hormone, insulin, the hunger hormone, ghrelin, the satiety hormone, leptin, all of these things are intricately connected to how we sleep and if we want those to be balanced well and to be working in our favor we need to get good quality sleep
0: that is so fascinating all of that and i think a lot of these moms we were like i said at the gym this morning she was saying how tired she was because her child had been up all night and she could barely do the workout so she was like maybe it would have been better for me just to stay in bed and sleep in and i was like it probably would have been and she's like really you think so? No, I need to be here. So it's for that reason, right? To just help balance those hormones and detox and things like that.
1: Yeah. The magic truly happens in our sleep. I I, I didn't appreciate this as a medical student and early in my years of medicine because it wasn't valued. I mean, we used the sleep and we're dead mantra. We were told that every hour we slept, was an hour we were missing something. We weren't learning something. We weren't seeing that patient that happened to come in overnight because we were sleeping. And that was the wrong advice. And I've come full circle several years back, realizing that sleep is foundational. I'm a better human when I get my sleep. My wife can attest to that. And my six children can definitely attest to that. They know when I didn't get a good sleep because I'm a little cranky. But, uh, but the, the flip side of that is it affects all the other things, all the hormones that can potentially keep us lean or, or help us get fat, can be balanced if we sleep and get adequate sleep. So yeah, wow. sleep is foundational.
0: That It really is crazy to me to think about because I think a lot of Americans don't get at least seven hours of sleep and at least good quality of sleep for those seven hours. I know a lot of people have a hard time falling asleep or waking up in the middle of the night and then can't get back to sleep, things like that.
1: Yeah, that's so true. And, and what's interesting is during the last couple of years of the pandemic, right, you would think we could improve Our sleep because most of us didn't have to, you know, waste time commuting to work. Many of us got to work from home. And so we actually had potentially more hours in the day to get our work done and then to hopefully be able to increase the number of hours that we slept. But unfortunately, because some of these other things were off in our life, we were getting bombarded with stressful stimuli from the news or from whatever else. And we were maybe starting to binge on Netflix or whatever it was, you know, we're staring into screens too late at night. I mean, there's all these factors that have really kind of wrecked a lot of our sleep habits. And and since we talked about food, I just want to mention this briefly, one of the most helpful things, and it doesn't even involve necessarily less calories or anything is just stop eating within a couple hours of going to bed. Don't eat a late meal. In other words, don't eat at eight o'clock at night and lay down at nine. Like that's not very helpful. The goal should be about three hours prior to bed, To stop your calorie intake. I call it a a food curfew. I got a bunch of teenagers. We have curfews for other things. We also try to do a food curfew. You don't eat right up until the moment you lay down at night because number one, you're going to have a crappy, crappy sleep. It's very taxing on your body to digest food. And if all that energy is being shunted into getting your blood flow increased to metabolize that food, guess what? It wakes you up. You don't sleep well. And even if you get that sort of post big meal tiredness, like what happens coming up on Thanksgiving, we get tired after a big meal, what's going to happen within a couple hours. We're going to wake up again because our blood sugar drops and our body's like, Hey, I I might need another little something, you know, that midnight snack, so to speak. So one of the easiest, easiest levers there with sleep and food is just don't eat a couple hours uh, before bedtime. Try to try to limit that. And then if you can wake up in the morning and not eat immediately and just let, let your body kind of settle into the day, do what uh, the Ayurvedics do and drink about 20 to 30 ounces of water first thing in the morning. It's, it's a game changer. So yeah, sleep is foundational. Absolutely.
0: Okay. That's interesting that you said all of that. And I appreciate you telling the science behind it. So what about those people though? Cause it's sort of a controversy on like Instagram. They're saying, no, have like a protein snack or something with protein or fats right before you go to bed, especially those who have blood sugar issues.
1: Yeah. So that's, um, so here's the thing. The reason that some people will feel the need to do that is because their metabolism is broken to some degree. It's not working well. And what is the most common problem is we are too dependent as a society on carbohydrates, right? 60% of our diet comes from highly processed food, which are primarily carbohydrates. So what happens when you eat a carbohydrate is you have an initial surge in your glucose and insulin, then it dips and a lot of times because of the surge in insulin to try to keep the blood from having really high levels of glucose, which can be damaging, right? We've all heard of the super high levels that can exist with problems like diabetes. They can be dangerous. Sometimes the body overshoots, gives too much insulin. So then you have a dip, you know, one or two hours after you eat and you have a little bit of reactive hypoglycemia. And guess what? You're like, holy crap. I got to get that next little snack because my blood sugar just dipped. And if I don't get it, there's going to be a problem. So here's the thing. You can overcome that through changing your snacks. So, right now, don't, if you feel the need to snack, your body probably has a little dip, possibly the hypoglycemia, but just don't reach for a highly processed snack food. Instead, reach for some nuts, for example, reach for an avocado, something that is not highly laden with carbohydrates and change your snacking. Pretty soon, you'll find out as you eat more of these real foods and less of the really empty carbs, so to speak, that come from processed foods, your metabolism will heal, right? If it was a little bit broken before it'll heal and get better. And it won't need those frequent snackings. In fact, that's one of the, one of the primordial sort of steps that I offer to people is first change what you're eating as a snack later on, as you're changing both your snacks and the food that you're eating in meals, you'll find that you don't have the urge or even the need to snack anymore. Your metabolism repairs itself. It gets used to surviving from our fat storage, which all of us have, even me around the middle, like that it was destined to have to keep us alive. That's why we've survived all of these millennia, because our body knows how to store fat. And if we can use that for our energy source, rather than having to jump for carbs every two to three hours, we would be a much better place and our metabolism would work much better. So that, I, that long story is, the answer to your Instagram question is, that that's not good advice (laughs) to eat snacks right before bedtime. Number one, it's going to disrupt your quality of sleep. But if you need to, because your metabolism may be a little bit broken right now and you need to snack, make it a real food that preferably doesn't have a lot of carbs that has more satiating, real healthy fats like avocado, for example, coconut oil, things like that, or healthy protein and try to not do carbohydrate laden snacks.
0: Okay. That's really good to know. So that's really good to know. So in the morning, do you suggest, I know you said drink water first and settle into the day a little bit, but do you say like an hour after waking up, two hours, are you into intermittent fasting? What do you suggest?
1: Yeah. So um, intermittent fasting, I think is a great thing. I think that we as society tend to, when we see something that works, we jump on it and we overutilize utilize it. We, we get a little bit too hyper-focused on it historically, we've always done a type of intermittent fasting, which is the time restricted feeding variety, which is that we never had refrigerators. We never had convenience stores. We never had drive throughs So we never really ate after sundown. We just never really did. And then when we woke up in the morning, because we didn't have a pantry, we didn't have a refrigerator. We didn't eat when we first woke up. So I think mimicking that pattern, which I like to call a circadian fast. In other words, we're just not eating overnight. And then in the morning, when we feel ready and everybody's body is different. And and as you uh, do a little trial and error with this, you'll, you'll maybe initially still feel like you need to eat when you wake up in the morning and that's fine. You can do that, but maybe if you can pause, you know, for 30 minutes, drink that water, maybe that turns into an hour. Maybe that turns into one or two hours. Ideally, my, my sort of base level goal is to try to get people to have a 12 hour period of just an overnight fast. So, If you sleep hopefully for eight hours and you don't eat three hours before bed, you're already at 11 hours. All you have to do is just wait one hour after you roll out of bed to eat breakfast. And I think most of us, like the moment we get up, we're not like, oh my gosh, I got to go to the refrigerator. Like we, you know, maybe do a few things or you get ready, whatever. And then we eat after that. So the 12 hour sort of minimum that I like to use, I think almost anybody can benefit from that because we need that time to sort of reset our metabolism. You guys have heard of autophagy, I'm sure. That's sort of that cleaning mechanism to take out the garbage that happens overnight, you know, that renews us, that restores us, that gets all the crap out, right? All the toxins and and waste products of metabolism. It flushes all those things out when we're not eating. And so I think a mild intermittent fast, which is just an overnight fast, circadian fast can be beneficial to anyone. If you specifically have weight loss goals and things like that. I think if you extend that a little bit, that's fine too. 12 hours can be 13 or 14 hours, 16. I don't recommend for most people, they go much beyond 16, especially with women of childbearing age, et cetera. I think that's a little rough on their bodies. And I've seen it not work so well, especially at certain times of the month, for example, uh, for women. And I think our extreme personalities, we like to latch on to something and then just go full board. Oh, I want to do 18 hours or, oh, I want to do... 20 hours. Oh, I want to go to OMAD, right? Or one meal a day. And I just think that's excessive. It's not helpful. And it could even possibly turn into an eating disorder. So I don't think we should push it to the limit, but I think a simple 12 hour or so, maybe a a little bit extended and and people that get used to it is perfectly fine. It's perfectly normal. Our bodies were made for that.
0: I absolutely love that explanation. Thank you. Thank you. Because sometimes there are the extremes of you've got to do intermittent fasting, but only 20 hours where you're explaining it with the 12 hour is so great. So I now want to move on to another topic though, about weight loss, because I think this is something we all deal with. And I want to know how does stress contribute to weight gain?
1: Yeah. So stress in the acute setting, if we're you know running away from that proverbial tiger or lion is a good thing, right? cortisol gets released. That's the so-called stress hormone that comes from the adrenal glands. It kind of peps us up. It actually releases glucose into the bloodstream because we need that quick action energy to run away from the tiger. So in the short term, it's great. It saves our life. But if that cortisol is activated day in and day out all night long, and we get into that sort of adrenal issue where we're just burning through the cortisol all the time, we can have actually end up having some fatigue from that because we're just releasing it all day long and it's making, uh, cortisol makes us a little bit insulin resistant. And I I know Dr. Bickman talks about this and he's probably the best one to describe it, but we actually wake up in the morning with a little bit of a cortisol surge. That's what helps us wake up in the morning, gets our glucose up, gets us kind of ready for the day. But if we have cortisol up all the time from whether it be stress from the media, stress from life or work or or that we're not sleeping well, that's an additional stress. If the cortisol is up all the time, guess what is also up? Our glucose is also always up. Our insulin is always up and we become more insulin resistant because the insulin just doesn't work as well. And so if any of you have ever experienced that feeling, usually it's at night or your body, you just feel exhausted. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm so tired. I just want to crash out but yet you're, you're kind of wired and you can't go to sleep. That sort of tired and wired phenomenon that I think many of us have felt, especially during these last couple of years, we've, you know, our whole circadian rhythms have been out of whack because, you know, we have everything available to us. We can turn on the TV or our cell phones or do work late into the night, all these kinds of things that disrupt our circadian rhythm. And it also disrupts this stress hormone called cortisol. And if that's up all the time, it's going to cause weight gain. It's just science. Cortisol goes up, glucose goes up, also insulin goes up. Insulin is what makes us store fat. It's the energy storage Mm -hmm. hormone, if you will. Then there's a few others we can talk about, the lipoprotein lipase and things like that. It gets a little bit um, detailed for for most, but basically things don't work well with respect to your weight if your cortisol is up all of the time. If it goes in spurts when you really need it to do your exercise, to run away from the tiger, whatever, totally fine. But if it's up all of the time, No good, no bueno, as they say.
0: (laughs) Okay, thank you for explaining that. So also though, when our cortisol is up, isn't our progesterone down a little bit? And so then that can also cause like estrogen dominant symptoms, which weight gain is one of those symptoms, correct?
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. That's totally, yeah. What I like to um, use with the cortisol, cortisol and insulin, they work together and they're sort of among the most dominant of all the hormones and they interplay with everything else, including the estrogen, including the progesterone. And so, when you can get those two, if you just focus on getting those two things balanced, your insulin and your cortisol, and they really go hand in hand, all of the other hormonal problems improve significantly. Many of them even go away. You know, ladies that have PCOS, for example, I've worked with many who, as they've paid attention to diet and sort of lessen the processed foods and things. Their insulin levels go down. And guess what? Their PCOS tends to disappear for the most part. They don't often need to be on hormonal therapies and things because their body, your body is smart. It knows how to do these things. We just need to start remembering how we used to do it, you know, a hundred years ago or 200 or a thousand years ago.
0: Right. Okay. I have a question for you then, because I hate when people tell me to reduce my stress. I'm like, I've got six kids, I work, I can't reduce (laughs) it. But what I can do is I can manage it. So I always tell people you need to learn how to manage your stress. So do you have tips for people on how to manage their stress?
1: Absolutely. I, I wrote a whole chapter in the book on that. And first, I just want to echo what you said. Stress is going to come at us. We can't avoid it, especially, I mean, look at the last couple of years, we've had tons of stress. The cool thing, and this goes into the management portion, is that we get to decide right here, number one, even before we go into the management techniques like breathing and exercise and mindfulness and all that, we get to decide right here if that's stress, because we're all going to have some, if that's going to be a negative thing and be detrimental to our health, or if it could be something that could be positive. It could be a growth experience, right? we actually get to decide that a 2012 study that took 180,000 people looked at that they had people determine if they're low stress people medium or high stress people and then the second question much more important was what was the meaning that they attached to that stress Mm. if you had high stress and you believed it was bad for you guess what your chance of dying went up your chance of chronic disease went up your chance of all these conditions that we're trying to prevent it all went up but if you were also in that group that had high stress Like you, uh, Carolyn, as a mother of six kids and working and all, there's tons of stress involved. If you were in that group and you believed that that stress could be something positive, it could cause growth, it could be empowering, not only was that stress not harmful or not deleterious, but it actually was protective. It actually increased your lifespan, decreased your chances of chronic disease, even though you had that same high level of stress. So the beginning starts with what's here, what's between our ears. We- to attach the meaning. And that's powerful. That is, and then there's all the things that we can do.
0: Oh, sorry. I was going to say that is really powerful because I've actually never heard that study. So I'm over here smiling like, oh, good. All I have to do is change my perspective about all my stress. And rather than complain about it, just be grateful for it all.
1: That's that's the starting point. Uh, first and <laughs> foremost, that's the biggest lever lever. And then and then you do the things that are helpful like you mentioned. You can get, you know, a moment of mindfulness. It doesn't have to be full-on meditation. Honestly, I'm not a great meditator because it's hard for me to get 30 minutes in the day where I can, you know, sit by myself yeah. and do breathing. I do it in in spurts. Maybe I'll go for a 10-minute walk and while I'm walking, I focus on my breathing. I'll often put my hand over my heart. I'll feel my heartbeat. I'll put another hand over my abdomen and feel my, my breathing because you want to be sort of abdominal breathing. You want to get those super deep breaths. And so breath work in as little, get this, as little as five breaths can trigger what's called the parasympathetic nervous system, which is that kind of relaxed nervous system. It can trigger that in as little as five breaths. That's okay. less than a minute. We can all figure out how to do that. And there's lots of stuff online. I explain a few simple breathing techniques in the book, but that's a great one. It doesn't take a lot of time. Or my favorite of all times is a quick bout of exercise of any kind. Like right here in this room, I keep at my feet, I keep weights. So every hour that I'm working, I try to do at least five minutes of some kind of movement every hour. And I also work at a standing desk. I'm standing up talking to you right now. It's not fancy. It's not attractive. If you took a picture of me, I have a cardboard box on top of a regular desk and then another box. And then my computer, (laughs) like some of these things are so simple, but just when you move your body, great way to relieve stress. And, And there's a bunch of other techniques. My favorite is connection with people. Like even your pet, your favorite canine or feline friend, Oh, that increases this hormone called oxytocin, which is that sort of befriend tendon, befriend hormone. It, it really goes up and it's like the anti-stress hormone. So there's lots of techniques to reduce or, or not, not reduce, but manage your stress because stress is going to be coming at us no matter what we do. And if we learn how to, I even go further, I call it optimize. If we learn how to Mm -hmm. optimize this stress, that's going to hit us anyway, it can actually work in our favor. Imagine that.
0: I love that. I'm actually going to change my uh, managed stress to optimize stress now. Those are great tips. And I love that they're so easy, that five breaths. That's incredible. That's all you need if that's all you have time for. I mean, obviously it'd be better to do more, but um, those are really great tips. And as you were talking, I'm like, yeah, I need to get a standing desk. I am sitting <laughs> way too much. I love those tips. Thank you so much for those. So I could ask you so many more questions, but I know we're running short on time. So why don't you tell my listeners a little bit about your book, Preventable?
1: Uh, I would love to. So my upcoming book, which is due out this coming January, it's been delayed a little because I figure that's going to be best for all of us to be in that mindset to really focus on our health is in the first of the year. So it's coming out in January. It's called Preventable, Five Powerful Practices to Avoid Disease and Build unshakable health. So in the book, we go into the detail, the nitty gritty, not only the science, but the really simple, practical things that are the biggest levers to improve our health. And the cool part about it is basically 90 plus percent of it is all free. In other words, you don't need to get a gym membership to increase your exercise or movement. There's so many things that I share in the book, how you can do that for free. We talk about sleep. We talk about the stress optimization that we just chatted about briefly. All of these simple daily habits are not hard. They are doable and they will literally make the biggest difference in your overall health. And so that's what the book is all about, preventable. And it's exciting to share it with you because as I mentioned at the outset, seven out of 10 of the most common causes of death worldwide are almost entirely preventable. You are not destined to have XYZ necessarily just because you have the genes. Nowadays, we understand that it's only about 10%, maybe even less than 10% of our health conditions and things are in the genes. 90 some odd percent is up to us, the epigenetics, all the other factors, what we do and what we don't do in our environment, and all these kinds of things. And so that's the powerful message is that these things can be prevented. You can live that full life, like I talked about my grandfather at the outset, who lived well into his 90s with a condition that could have claimed his life as early as 40s, like my other friend that I mentioned. So we can do this. It's simple and easy. The book is called preventable.
0: Love that. And I love the idea behind it. I mean, it's so important that we all learn, like you said, that we have a huge role in the outcomes of our health. And so I'm really excited to read that book. So when it comes out, I will remind my listeners and my followers that it's available. As we wrap up here, are there any last little tips that you would love to share with the followers or suggestions of where they start if they want to start losing weight? Where do they begin?
1: Yeah, so the simplest starting place, number one is take a deep breath and know that you are not broken. Your metabolism might be broken, but it can be fixed and it can be fixed actually quite readily. It's been shown in the studies that in as little- As a few days to a few weeks, you can start improving and and fixing a metabolism that may not be working well. And it starts with the tip of your fork. So just make a little bit better food choices today than you did yesterday. And I love the add rather than subtract method. Remember at the beginning we talked about there's really only three main things to avoid or to take out of the diet. And then there's literally thousands and thousands and thousands of things you can add. Go to the supermarket and do what Carolyn did the other day and grab 20 vegetables, maybe some of them, you don't even know what they are, and start trying maybe one or two things a week. Like if you can try a new thing every day that's real and that doesn't need a label, that's a new vegetable or fruit, go for it. But just try one or two a week. So adding rather than subtracting, your diet and paying attention what you put in your mouth and hopefully it's real food that is the biggest needle mover right there and we can all do it
0: love it love that advice like i said i really love watching you on instagram you give such great advice so why don't you tell my listeners where they can find you
1: yeah so super easy on instagram it's just my name with a d r in front of it dr thomas hemingway and uh, i spell my name t-h-o-m-a-s and then hemingway just like ernest did with one m and my website is thomas Hemingway.com. all of the platforms. If you just look for me as Thomas Hemingway, you should be able to find me. But Instagram, it's Dr. Thomas Hemingway with Dr. Thomas Hemingway. And you can find all the stuff there. I have a link on my website, for example, about the upcoming book, all that good stuff.
0: Okay, good to know. So I always end my podcast with asking my guests what they have found to be the best ingredient in life. What would you say it is?
1: You know, it started as a kid. And that ingredient for me is connection connection with people, connection with our food. It's all about relationships because if our body, we can relate both, not only just in a physical sense, but spiritual and emotional. If we can relate well with our surroundings, whether it be our food or with our pets or with our friends or family, that connection is massive. It can not only improve your health studies, so you can live up to 10 or 12 years longer. If you are well-connected with people, it can help you overcome stressful things. If you have connection, for me, it's all about connection. It's the little things. It's the stuff that you don't need to read in a book. It's picking up the phone or you know, saying hello to somebody when you walk by them on the street. Like It's those little moments that over a lifetime, the connections that make the biggest difference. Just smile more.
0: I love that so much. And I could go on and on about it because the connections bring less stress, then they bring more happiness in your life, and then it brings less anger and hatred towards others. I mean, I I think our whole world would be a better place if we all focused on connections a little bit more. So thank you for sharing that. I really enjoyed that. Thank you again so much for being here today. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know the listeners have learned a lot. I'm excited to share this with my followers because there are so many great little tips in here for people. So thank you for taking the time to be here.
1: Oh, you're so very welcome. Big aloha to everybody. And thank you for having me.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the Just Ingredients podcast to learn more about your health and good ingredients to life. Plus, get daily tips at just.ingredients on Instagram.